from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I do things that annoy God every single day. My sexuality is the smallest part of that. It's the, the anger and the rage and the self-righteousness and the pride and all those other things that are way bigger problems. And he keeps forgiving me. Then I have no moral high ground to judge anybody. Not, not the angry fundamentalist who's mad at me. Not the person who thinks that my sexual ethic is inherently violent to gay people or just and self-hating, you know, all the things that we hear. But they're also thinking, okay, then why do you have to be celibate? That our listeners are are thinking, can't you then be in a relationship with a man, just be who you are? I'm Sarah Fenske. Last summer, leaders of the Presbyterian Church in America convened in St. Louis and voted to bar people who identify as gay from being ordained within their denomination. This rule would apply even if those people were committed to celibacy. And at the time, one church observer wrote that the vote was designed to, quote, prevent another Greg Johnson. Now, the measure failed to get the 67% supermajority needed to change the denomination's bylaws. But some church leaders seem prepared to mount another attempt at this summer's national convention. So who is Greg Johnson? And what put him front and center in this battle for the soul of the Presbyterian Church in America? Greg's book, Still Time to Care, What We Can Learn from the Church's Failed Attempt to Cure Homosexuality, tells his story, and it's part of what turned his vision for the church into a national controversy. Greg Johnson is the lead pastor of Memorial Presbyterian Church, which is located on the edge of Forest Park in St. Louis, and he joins us today. Pastor Greg Johnson, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sarah. I'm glad to be here. So you write in your book about being a gay atheist teen who fell for Jesus. How did that happen for you? Yeah, you know, it was weird. I I grew up in suburban D.C. My dad was a senior executive for the federal government, and uh, you know, I, I grew up atheist, and um, you know what happened is late in in high school, I started having having all these questions about justice. Is there such a thing as evil? Is it really wrong to to treat people in certain ways? And and uh, and it was really a philosophical uh, thing because I, if I concluded that 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 justice and injustice were, were real things, then I, then I'm thinking, well. Well, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. You know, there has to be some infinite reference point to, to judge what's really good and loving and true. And so I found myself questioning my atheism. Uh, I questioned it the way Christians question their Christianity, uh, and I doubted it. And then in college, I ended up uh, uh, really falling in love with Jesus when I, when I realized what Christianity was, that it wasn't about me trying to become this better person so God would bless me, but the thought that, that uh, you know, that we're sinners and Jesus loves sinners and yeah. takes the blame for us. And and that captured my heart because, uh, and surprisingly what, what happened is that I expected as I became a Christian that, that my shame would increase. Because mm-hmm. when you realize you're gay in the 1980s, I mean, there was all sorts of shame. You know, even yeah. an atheist would feel shame. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and yet what happened is it actually uh, lowered a great deal. And, um, and yet recently what's happened is I've, I've, I've shared my story more publicly about how, you know, I was a part of the ex-gay movement 
Um, certainly there was a time when I would have described myself as ex-gay. and But you thought you'd been, quote, cured. Or I was being cured. I, yeah. I, you know, I, I spent a lot of years convincing myself that I was a straight man with a disease called homosexuality that could be cured. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, perhaps up to a million of us did that uh, based on certain surveys out of, out of uh, University of California. And, uh, and yet a few years back, I, I shared my story in Christianity Today about how my orientation had never changed. Yeah. And I'm, I'm committed to celibacy. Um, but uh, that, together with this book, has caused a little bit of a controversy. A little bit of a controversy. <laughs> That's a, a way to underplay that right there. Yeah, I mean, this piece in Christianity Today is what started all this and, and led directly to this book. You were really, you were coming out in a way that, that few people have to come out quite so dramatically anymore. You were saying, hey, I am attracted to men. That is something that's not going to change. And you're telling this to a church that thinks that that is a really big sin. What led you to make that step? You know, it was it was a, a couple-year process of, of seeking counsel, and I had a lot of people, pastors and counselors, praying with me and encouraging me and, and giving me advice and and. Uh, at first, I had no interest in doing it because I, I would just imagine, okay, I do this and I just watch all the people and the money that are going to leave my church. And I don't, no pastor wants to be the guy who buries his church, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I've been there 20 years. Um, and uh, so um, the thing that ultimately convinced me was I started thinking about the teenager in one of our churches who realizes they're gay, um, who's never told a soul who is wondering whether God hates them, and who doesn't have any role models within their denomination to look to Mm -hmm. for how a gay person can actually live a productive, meaningful, joyful life filled with relationships and and serve God. And and, uh, so it was really, I was worried about the teenager because um, in conservative religious spaces, people don't know what to do when a teenager comes out. Yeah, Uh, They don't understand that that may very well be the most traumatic period of their life up to that point. And, and they need to hear, you know, mom or dad saying, I'm so thankful you shared this with me. I'm so sorry that we weren't involved in this uh, up until now and you had to do this alone. And, uh, you know, you need to find out if, if they feel safe at school. Do they feel safe at church? Do they feel safe in youth group? Do they, uh, have they been bullied? Are they, have they had thoughts of hurting themselves and how do you get a care team around them because particularly in a church setting, a conservative church setting, they're also going to have to in the coming years figure out what they really believe and 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 make their own choices and uh, we want to kind of create as loving an environment as possible. But it was, it was thinking about LGBT youth because they have a high suicide rate um, and, and statistics uh, do show that being in a religious family can make that worse, not better. Mm-hmm. So you wanted to be there for those kids. At the same time, you almost put your own job at risk here. Do you think that what followed, what happened at the national convention, coincidentally in St. Louis last summer, that that is a direct reaction to you coming out and saying, yes, even though I'm celibate, I want you to know I'm still attracted to men. Yeah, it's, uh, it is a direct result. But, um, but you know, Straight pastors are still attracted to women other than their wives. You know, that, that's no different. Um, you know, uh, Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. And our first membership 
uh, vow is that we vow that we are sinners, that we are less than the best of humanity and need, need a savior. And so uh, that shouldn't be a big deal. Um, you know, it's just, it's just, there's this legacy of the ex-gay movement that had so many of us for so many years saying, oh, I'm not gay. I just struggle with unwanted same-sex attractions. You know, mm-hmm. that was the language the conversion therapist taught us to use. And, uh, um, and uh, but, you know, the way that conversation always goes with anybody outside of a conservative religious space is, oh, you mean you're gay? No, I'm not gay. I just, I just uh, struggle with unwanted attractions to other men. You mean you're you're gay? No, I'm not. It, it becomes all about identity. Yeah, for For yeah. In, in some some conservative Christian spaces, they're they're more concerned about you not using the gay word than they are about because they they want to think think that something changed. They want to kind of have that that plausible deniability that yeah. this is still one of us. This is not somebody where we have yeah. to hold the line that we're going to hold. Yeah. But I imagine there's many people listening to this conversation now who are right there with you and they applaud that you came out, that you took this courageous step, that you, that you did this for the kids. But they're also thinking, okay, then why do you have to be celibate? I, I, that our listeners are, are thinking, can't you then be in a relationship with a man, just be who you are? Yeah, that's that's where most people today would, would think. They look at me and they, they it's an enigma. Like, what? Are you crazy? Why don't you get out? There are other denominations with churches, you know. But but for me, it's a matter of conviction. You know, um, when I when I when I came to believe that Christianity was true, and it was very much a oh my gosh, I think this is actually true in the the real sense. This isn't like the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus. This is and um, when when that happened, I had to really wrestle with what Scripture teaches, and and I. It's not that I didn't read books. I got a PhD in historical theology at SLU <laughs> along the way. I was trying to figure it out. But I've really, really come to the conclusion that God wants me celibate. And so, um, you know, even even Ralph Blair, who was the first affirming evangelical back in the 1960s and 70s, had a conversation with him. And he and I are of different views on, on sexual ethics. But even him being very progressive, uh, very much a believer in, in evangelical gay marriage, mm-hmm. uh, he, he told me, Greg, with your conviction, you have to stay celibate because it would be wrong for you to violate your conscience. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's kind of where I am. Um, but, you know, any time a gay person comes to faith in, in, in Christianity, they've got to kind of figure out what they believe. And uh, some people land in different places. We're talking today to Greg Johnson. He is the longtime pastor of Memorial Presbyterian Church that's here in the city of St. Louis. His book is Still Time to Care, What We Can Learn from the Church's Failed Attempt to Cure Homosexuality. You talk about your story in that book, but what was so eye-opening to me, something that even as somebody who grew up was raised Protestant, you talked about some of the 20th century's most influential Protestant thinkers. Their attitudes towards LBGTQ people were so different than what we might assume today. And people who were there in the 80s and 90s when the culture wars started heating up, this was not the case back for for C.S. Lewis and and people in um, prior generations who contemplated these issues. What struck you in researching that part of the book and that history? Yeah, that was, it was fascinating because, um, you know, my my PhD focused on transatlantic Anglo-American evangelicalism in the 20th century, which, so this was right up my, my area of research. And, and what struck me is, you know, in a, in a conservative Christian context where today you're frowned upon if you even use the word gay, um, you know, there, that I could, I could find where 
C.S. Lewis's best friend Arthur Greaves was gay. Um, they vacationed together. The the um, the 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 volume of letters between them just just Lewis's letters came to almost five hundred pages uh, because they were in constant communication. Um, and they, Lewis wasn't trying to change this uh, about his friend. No, no. Uh, when, when in, I think it was about 1902, when Arthur came out to Lewis, Lewis was still an atheist at the time, um, Lewis felt like he had no position to, to judge him. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis himself had, you know, kind of a, an interest in sadomasochistic kinds of, of fantasies. Uh, he, he signed his letters Philomastix, which is Latin for whip lover. Uh, so yeah, next time you read the Chronicles of Narnia, just realize the Bible says that, they, that, they, that there is none righteous, not even one. You know? it, it does explain <laughs> some bits from the Chronicles of Narnia in retrospect. A few scenes now make more sense. But, yeah, but, yes. uh, <laughs> but you know, he, he, he was very supportive. He never made an issue of it. It's even possible that, that Arthur at one point had a crush on, on Lewis, but Lewis wasn't going to make an issue of that and wasn't going to let that ruin their, their friendship. Um, you know, Lewis, later in life, um, advocated for, in, in Great Britain, advocated uh, for the repeal of, of sodomy laws. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he um, you know, and he, he was very adamant that homosexual, homosexuality is not the worst sin. Mm -hmm. You know, he was certainly conservative and orthodox in his sexual ethics. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, he, he said, you know, and he himself was straight. He said that uh, homosexuality was one of two sins he had never met on the field of battle, the other one being gambling. And I wouldn't even call that a sin. Um, <laughs> but and the, he felt, uh, and obviously, you know, there's people who would dispute that this is even a sin, but he felt by saying that he didn't meet this on the field of battle, he then couldn't go judge people who had. Right, right. He yeah. certainly upheld a traditional uh, view of, of, of sex and, and marriage. But, uh, you know, what I found is a lot of these 20th century uh, conservative Christian leaders, you know, Francis Schaeffer, who founded Labrie Fellowship and on his, and he was Christianity Today magazine, called him R. St. Francis and said he had the biggest in influence on, on uh, educated evangelicals in, in the United States and Great Britain. Um, you know, he said that to, to say that, um, you know, that, that a Christian conversion will make somebody straight is is cruel mm -hmm. and wrong. He says, we're still in a fallen world. Um, he lamented uh, the fact that, that churches had marginalized gay people. Um, Labrie Fellowship, where he founded in Sweden, uh, was a haven for gay people trying to figure out what they believe. They couldn't do it safely within their own church, but they, they could go to Labrie. Mm -hmm. They could go to Switzerland and have a safe space to process things and figure it out. And... Uh, you know, he said that uh, the problem with the Orthodox churches is that they have made even orientation itself into a sin. Mm. Uh, and he said that is both cruel and wrong. And so that seems to be kind of what's happening today within your own denomination, saying someone can't be a pastor if they have this orientation. You talk about now that people have – it's become clear that this ex-gay movement has failed. People yeah. are no longer referring people to places like Exodus International to get right. cured. What do you see as the way forward for the church in light of that? Yeah, you know, for the conservative church in America, I think, I think the real change is to, to go back to that earlier paradigm of care instead of cure. Uh, and uh, and, and what that looks like is first you've got to get rid of all the emotional abuse – because there's a lot of it. There are things that are said 
and Christian youth groups that should never be said. Uh, there's a huge need for training, training parents how to, how, to, how to love their children when they come out, how to keep loving them without controlling them, uh, training pastors. Um, and a uh, big part is, is you know, if you're, if you're going to be in a denomination that says you can't have a gay marriage, then you've got to provide alternate forms of community because I, I, can, I can live without sex. I can't live without intimacy. Mm-hmm. I can't live without love. Um, you know, I have one, uh, one guy in my church, my best friend. We've had cocktails together every Thursday for 15 years. I've got one elder in my church where we've had coffee every Thursday morning for almost 20 years. I've got a family that moved to St. Louis to be involved in my ministry uh, 20 years ago who's had me in their house hundreds of times. And I have refrigerator rights. I don't have to ask permission to open their door and, and take a beer out. You know, it's, it's – uh, and, and that's what it has to look like. If we're going to, to say that somebody has to stay celibate, mm-hmm. then, then the church has to step up and be that family um, because otherwise, you know, the loneliness is, is just going to crush people. So we've heard from a number of listeners, and these are people who – these are not conservative Christians pushing back on you. These are progressives pushing back. Madonna said, quote, it's okay to say you're gay as long as you don't act on it. You said you want to be a role model for youth in your church. What kind of role model is that? You can be gay but not live your life as a gay person. Another listener who uh, didn't want us to use their name said this, quote, I think it's important that you understand that even folks like him who claim to accept gay people within the PCA church still accept them to be celibate. While I will fully support anyone's personal conviction, imposing this on any member of the church is harmful. For decades, I held out hope that things would change. But two years ago, as I watched the denomination become increasingly entrenched in homophobia and patriarchy, I decided to walk away from the PCA and evangelicalism. Yeah. Your yeah. responses to that. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's hard because stories like mine can be um, weaponized, you know, and that's, that's my constant fear is that somebody's going to tell their kid, why can't you be one of the good gays like Greg Johnson? Mm-hmm. And, and I don't want that because they're going to have to come to their own conclusions about what they believe and how they want to live their life. And, and the church's job is to provide support for that, um, but they may look for support elsewhere too, and that's, that's their prerogative. You know, mm-hmm. We, we want to we support them and figure out what they believe. So you remain committed at this point yeah, to yeah. the Presbyterian Church in America. You opened your Christianity for the moment. For the moment <laughs> you opened your Christianity Today piece in the late 1990s. I sought out a pastor I respected, and I opened up with him about wanting to share my story with my church. I was fatigued from a lifetime of trying to hide my shame. Do not do it, he thundered. If your church knew, they would never be able to accept you. Do you feel like you're living that today? Well, some somewhat uh, and somewhat not. Like you know, my. My church here in St. Louis is—they support me 100 percent. They love me. Um, they, you know, when I shared my 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 kind of coming out story uh, on a Sunday morning, I mean, it wasn't a surprise to many people, but you know, they gave me a standing ovation. Hmm. Um, you know, they cried out, "We love you, Greg." And my 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 regional body here, uh, Missouri Presbytery, which is the regional body of of, of churches um, in St. Louis, uh, they've been very supportive. You know. There have been people in the denomination that have demanded I be investigated, and they have investigated me and found no basis for charges. Then they investigated me again and found no basis for charges, and these were not lopsided votes. Um, Then, you know, that was appealed to our denominational Supreme Court, which last October 
ruled by a supermajority that there was, there was no basis for charges against me. And so in one sense, the denomination of the church is doing everything right to protect me. But there's this huge grassroots effort within the denomination to change the rules. And so in that sense, yeah, it does kind of feel like, you know, I've lived my life as a unicorn running among horses, and now they're, some of them are trying to get me off the field. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you're not getting off that field. Well, I'm not making any long-term commitments, but uh, my long-term commitment is to Jesus. And, uh, and, and if I ever left the denomination, um, it would be only because of um, the damage and the conflict that it's causing. But, you know, when I look at my critics, the people who, who really just want to get rid of me, I cannot judge them. I cannot look down upon them. I cannot find myself superior to them because, you know, Christianity says that I'm the biggest sinner in the room just because I'm in the room and I'm, I'm the biggest sinner and my sexuality is the smallest part of that. It's the, the anger and the rage and the self-righteousness and the pride and all those other things that are way bigger problems. But, uh, but if God forgives me all of that, and I do things that annoy God every single day, and he keeps forgiving me because Jesus took the blame for me. If, if that's true, then I have no moral high ground to judge anybody. Not, not the angry fundamentalist who's mad at me, um, not the person who thinks that my sexual ethic is inherently violent to gay people or mm-hmm. just you know, repressed and self-hating, you know, all the things that we hear. Um, because I really believe that Jesus loves gay people, and I want evangelical churches to learn to say that and believe that and to live that uh, through word and deed, not by controlling people, but by, by loving them. And, uh, and so I'm not in a position to judge. And so I'm honestly doing pretty well. Um, you know, I have peace. I have confidence. I know my Father in heaven loves me. And, and that is a, an identity that cannot be taken away by anyone or anything, not even by death. Well, Pastor Greg Johnson, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. This episode was produced by Kayla Drake with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.